Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Carbide Content. My name is Dalen. Hello, I'm David. I'm Contraption Collection. Howdy, everybody. I'm Grant. I am Fellowship Blades. And hello, everyone. I'm John from Triaxis. All righty. How's, uh, how's everybody's week been? All right. Very good. Fabulous. It's going fabulous. All right. Oh, nice. Yeah. Tell me about it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I usually just during the week, like I use Trello to keep track of some stuff. I don't know if you guys know what that is. Heard of it. And just when I have an idea for something to talk about on the podcast, I just throw it up on Trello, like under a list. So a there's idea. a bunch of different stuff to talk about. But last week I was talking about those lock bar inserts and the one that failed to the the customer I sent one to. And so I did some testing and I was using 17.4 H900, which I should have put this in the list, but I think that's a Rockwell of like 30 something. Hold on. H900. But it's, it's C40 basically. So it's a little higher than I actually thought it was. Yeah. But so I did like the usual, like I have a little fixture to put the actual bend in the lock bar because the lock bar on midnight is not actually the cutouts not straight so it kind of has to be constrained when you move it because if you don't have it constrained it'll actually bend towards the way the cutout is cut and oh. it, yeah it won't be parallel to the blade anymore so it actually goes into a fixture that it, the whole the bar itself rests up against as you push so it kind of keeps it parallel mm-hmm. so i basically use that and then I did a bunch of, you know, spine whack tests. And so I basically got 30 really hard hits to fail. And I would say it's like 30% lockup for it to like fully fail. And then after it fails, basically you can have it fail by, you know, doing like a lighter hit. So at that point, right. the inserts, the inserts, it's got so much, I guess, deformation or it's been deformed so bad that yeah. it's now a rolled edge. So it just rolls past the angle on the back of the blade. But and those those are really hard hits and basically even halfway through it the insert doesn't lock stick or anything which is good. And there's no change in actual performance as far as like opening and closing. You don't notice the damage that you're actually bringing onto the insert itself. And like yeah. the pivot and the stop pin actually show no additional wear from it. So that's actually a pretty good sign. I think because I think you want the lock bar to be the thing that fails first as far as, well, not fails, but actually wears over time because it's a, it's a changeable, um, right. it's something people think of it as a changeable thing. It's they're the same size universally. So yeah. it was nice to see that the pivot, even though I'm using 17.4 pivots now, didn't have any noticeable um, wear or anything in like one spot kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Um, What's funny, too, when you look up spine whack tests, there's a lot of controversy on if they're a good test to actually prove anything. So I'm not going to debate whether it is, but I'm just going to leave it out there that it's definitely like a split down the middle, whether it's a completely, you know, not a real test as far as importance goes versus it is a very important thing. But last thing I will say on this thing is the handles are 
rather thin on midnight and they're also mm-hmm. pocketed a lot. So that does lead to a little bit when you grip the knife in the center and you put a ton of pressure on it, you are able to flex the lock bar slightly. And then I also noticed oh. that I also yeah, so I also noticed you wouldn't you wouldn't hold the knife to use it this way though. Like it's it's not a way I would anyone would really use a pocket knife. But something that is interesting, when you put a ton of pressure on the lock bar, like during a spine whack, so not actually hitting it, but just putting pressure against the spine and watching what the lock bar does, the actual bar, you can see it kind of, it'll flex, it'll like bow. Uh, I guess this would be convex, convex. And at some point it stops. And when it stops, it's actually like in a safe zone because it's no longer moving. Uh But if you can get it to flex more, then you obviously have, it flexes away and then it'll kind of unlock. So I think for, for tuning and stuff, if I wanted to, I could probably actually increase the thickness of the, the cutout in the knife itself. Cause I feel like that has a lot to do with how much bend it allows under that kind of load. Yeah. It'd be cool to see like if you could use generative design for something like this. Yeah. Oh, you definitely could, but then like, is it cost effective kind of thing? Um, but it would be a cool experiment, but it like, uh, you know, removing material doesn't, always lead to less rigidity because i i could be wrong grant you'd probably know better than me but like a a pipe is actually more rigid than uh like a solid bar you know what i mean yes yeah um uh, yeah if you if you equated similar mass the pipe has a higher uh, moment of inertia or what moment of bending i think there's a few different terms um which means it's it's more rigid, even though it's you could even have a less dense or less mass pipe that would be more rigid than a solid bar. Uh, or uh, when it comes to blades, you know, there's like a, on medieval swords, there's the blood groove people call it. Yeah, and I think that's actually it's not for blood. It's a uh, it's just like it's like a corrugated can or something. Just putting that groove actually makes it harder to bend than if it was just like flat. Um, uh yeah to to it, it makes I it lighter was... and and more rigid than if you were to just keep it flat um yeah uh, you you're on yeah so the the actual like structural you know properties can affect rigidity a lot more than just how much metal is there um and it, even i think grimsmo did something similar when he was working on the rask cutouts uh this is a long time ago now but he essentially had like two big cutouts and then he was realizing that in the fixture it was literally bowing out with the tool pressure so he changed the cutouts to have more cross beams and in specific areas and even though i think he might have made it lighter or it was about the same he had much more rigid handles at the end of it Mm. so yeah you may want to play out with how the cutouts are are oriented and and how they're actually designed more than just like thicker cutout it, I mean, you're, the midnight's really light, so or really small. You're not really worried about too being too heavy. It's titanium, so yeah, probably be fine either way. Yeah, I guess that's true. It's safe machining time, but yeah, I think yeah. 
I think the thing I learned from this was that it's not going to fail if you're for some reason using the knife to hit people with it, like on the spine. And the knife, yeah. the blade is so short that under even like an extreme load condition, it's not going to fail. Now, if you sit there and use it as a hammer, yeah, it's probably not going to last. But then you can put another insert in and then I don't know. So it's like, do you change? Is it worth it to go to a different material as well? But I don't know. Like, I was pretty satisfied, honestly, with the results uh, as far as it not failing as soon as I thought it would. But when yeah, it does no, fail, that lock bar is completely trashed. Like, there's no point yeah. in even, you know, trying to put more pressure on it, essentially. I I I think you're on to something with the lock bar, bar being the easiest component to replace. Like, it's engineered failure point. Brilliant yeah. part of designing. Uh, yeah, great move. My one thing, I think I would, I would uh, urge you to make one out of something harder, like whatever your blade steel is right now, um, and see if it still fails and it's still the failure point, uh, because then you would just have a stronger failure point. Right. Yeah. yeah. True. So yeah. I think it's it also requires more testing. You can also like it can be dangerous to worry too much about a trend off of one data point. So if there's like a low cost to change things and you know it's an improvement, you know, you could do it. But then if it's like, if only this, if this has only happened one time, you know, it, it could never happen again. You could have possibly never had to change anything. And it was just a weird, you know, mix of bad luck, you know, and, uh, but of course you can always try to keep improving your products too. Yeah. My thought actually was like you said, because it's such a, this has, has not happened kind of thing. I kind of wonder if it's a different part. And my thinking was, if for some reason the pivot was not engaged through both handles, like it missed the other handle kind of thing, like it was short for some yeah. reason, then that would cause that too, because you have that play there and the it actually changes over time kind of thing. So there's always oh, pressure yeah. against the back yeah. of the blade. And if the pivot's not supported on both ends and it pushes, then you've changed the location of the the back of the blade, which then, you know, the lock bar no longer touches where it was originally. So it could be something completely unrelated as caused the original issue, which is probably what it is. And yeah. I don't know. I don't have the knife yet, so I haven't been able to mm, uh, gotcha. get it. But so, yeah. 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 You're talking about curious. 41. 40, sorry. No, you're good. You can go for it. We were talking about 4140, right? No, it's a seventeen four. Oh, it is seventeen four. Yeah, yeah, on my chart, uh, I have like a Excel with a bunch of different hardnesses from McMaster, and it's saying forty five a uh, Rockwell C for pre hardened for seventeen four. Yeah, if it's soft, it's thirty. If it's hard, it says forty five. Oh, that's weird. Because this on this Google search, it just gives me like it says uh, condition H nine hundred, and then it goes C forty. Yeah, I think it depends on... Uh, uh, mine's just on what you can order from McMaster already hardened, I think. Okay, well, I guess I'm going to do... I'm going to look more into it, too, because... Yeah. But, yeah, so that's that's it. That's, that's all I got for for right now. I'm I'm very curious, when you get that knife in, what the actual, like, cause is. Because it sounded like he he picked it up out of the box and it was doing its failure which means it wouldn't be a wear problem. Um, yeah. More than likely tolerance stack problem or something along those lines. 
Yeah, and that's kind of why it like it points to. I guess I, the reason I did the spine rack thing was more of a curiosity thing than anything. Yeah, an actual full long test on them, like breaking them to mm-hmm. failure, and then his the his issues slightly not related. It's probably something else, but it just led me to testing it. I guess so. I guess right. I just sharing, but yeah, I agree. I mean, it failed out of the box from from what I could tell. So it's like. Yeah. You know, I don't think USPS or whatever was like, hey, cool knife. <laughs> Spine whack you 30 <laughs> times and put it back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I've had there, only there, good luck with shipping. So, yeah, there there is another um, thing you might want to consider. So I'm very much not in the folder world as much as I used to be. But I in my head, if I owned like a spider code or, I, you know, I have a spider code, but it, it, if I had like a ZT or whatever, and I was abusing it because I know it's a durable knife. Um, if I did something and the lock bar failed and closed, say worst case on my fingers, um, that's worst case scenario for me. I would rather the knife break itself before it broke me. Yeah. So you may actually want to think about that on a safety standard of like, is this the right engineering failure point? Because if this fails, it could be catastrophic. Where if, say, your pivot screw failed, your knife just falls apart, you replace the pivot screw or you know, whatever. Right. Um, right. It, it would look more catastrophic and it might be harder to replace, but it would be safer. You know? Yeah. No, yeah, I totally get that. I'm just like, and it's it, what you said is 100% true and something I've definitely thought about. And then it's like, how far do you go and then the realm of who like how far can you actually use this knife what's the expected use and then also like i said if people are out spine whacking it then it's like is that out of the use case but it does make sense to make the failure point be something that's machine related and not human flesh related exactly yeah right yeah I, I, and I don't know if there's a real like right answer because realistically, if you make it good enough and all the tolerances are right, it shouldn't fail in any normal use case, in which case they'll probably hurt themselves before they even break the knife if they're yeah. spine whacking it like that. Um, but, you know, just just as as I mean, for me, it's always like I'm going to look at my safety standard and then quadruple it because that's what I was taught. And I'm going to make it as, as durable and, and completely good as possible because, and I'll tell you this much, I've had people throw my knives across parking lots just for fun because I told them it was durable. Um, yeah. But it was durable. And then I got a huge, like, people really got into that and it was really cool. Um, yeah. And so now I have, like, an impromptu reputation for making tank knives that are, are cool. Um. So that's something to be considered is like, even if this is not a normal use case, there's going to be an outlier of somebody that, you know, some YouTuber is going to take it camping and baton with it. And you're like, what you're batoning with a two inch knife. What are you doing? (laughs) But yeah, this knife sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But imagine like if it held up to that, then it's like, oh, that's awesome. Like even this tiny little knife is super strong. You know? Yeah. So uh, did you get uh, a new mill this week or like it's on the floor? And it oh, wasn't yeah. Last week? Yeah. So that this is hilarious. My 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 entire like month schedule for everything has not gone to plan in the best way possible. 
Um, yeah, so the, I got on Wednesday, the mill hit San Antonio. It was supposed to sit at the uh, rigors storage place for like, you know, two or three weeks because they didn't have time. Thursday at three o'clock, they called me and was like, hey, can we move it t- tomorrow, Friday? And I was like, uh, yeah, sure. My my entire shop, it's a very narrow but long building. And so I I wanted to put my my mills facing each other at the end of the building. So I kind of have a mill cell. Um, mm-hmm. But currently I had like four tables set up where the mill is going because that's just how my shop has been running. Um, so Thursday from three to seven o'clock, I'd spent, you know, whatever, four hours just completely reorganizing my entire shop so that I could be prepared for early morning Friday mill movement. <laughs> um, and then they were here for all of like five minutes, dropped the mill off, and it's great. Um, it only took so like five minutes? Yeah, like it was super easy. Um, yeah, they just unloaded off the off the truck and dropped it in and left. And I was like, oh, that was the fastest turnaround I've ever seen for a mill ride. Um, yeah. I still got to get electrical, which is who knows when that's going to happen. Um, yeah. And and then I've got a Hostech. Once I get electrical, I've, I've got to get a Hostech out to level it. And I'm going to have them service it just to check everything that I'm not sure of. Um, but uh, yeah, I've got the mill is in. And it's the mill cell setup is really going to be cool. I'm very excited. I, I finally feel like a real machine shop now that I have two spindles. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. You bought it sight on scene, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How's it look inside there? Um, so luckily the chips in it are aluminum. So there are no cast iron chips to be seen, which is great. Um, it's definitely old. The paint's definitely worn off. Uh, it looks like it's been run in a a dirty oily shop, which is fine. Um, the, my riggers, unfortunately did a really bad job at the pickup. Um, I, I paid them also sight unseen cause they called me and were like, Hey, we're already here. If you pay us X amount, we'll just, you know, rig it up for you and load it onto whatever trailer you have. So I just, I paid them on the spot cause I was like, great. One thing done. Um, they didn't like chalk the spindle. Uh, oh. nothing, nothing was like together. Um, cause I, th- I think the morning that I, I was picking it up, they had, they still hadn't like prepped the mill. So they rushed it hardcore. So when I looked at it for the first time, there was an end mill in the spindle and it had dug a nice solid two inch groove as it drug around on the, on the, uh, the table. Um, so that's oh, not fun. Wow. It's oh yeah. Oh my. Yeah. It's, I mean, so it's, it's two inches long. I mean, preference two inches long probably you know 30 40 thou deep um so Dang. like i can stone it off but i'm worried that might have damaged some other component because it was you know the spindle was just like dragging on oh, the yeah table. seriously you should uh, definitely be going after them for for damages yeah that's it's not even just like they could have took the whole tool holder out like i mean i don't know maybe that could have been worse somehow but that's yeah that's I, crazy yeah I don't, it was it was very like you it is so easy to just drop the spindle on a on a wood block and you would have avoided this yeah. problem. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it and it looks like maybe they tried to do that, but they just didn't do it very well. I don't it's hard. I don't know. They they clearly rushed it and uh Huh. Well, hopefully everything's good. Um hang on, guys. Uh, I'm y'all continue. I've got uh electricians here. <laughs> 
Oh, sounds good. Well, that's good. <laughs> so, uh, do you guys have like actual nice airlines, or are you just using hoses? Oh, I'm winging it right now with hoses. It's bad. <laughs> yeah, I got hoses. Yep. I want to get that uh, whatever that company that makes the blue yeah. PVC kits. Yeah, is it Fast Pipe or something? Something like that. You can like lay out your shop beforehand in their little online software and get what you need. I should really do that. Yeah, I uh, I feel like I don't have great walls for that. Like I, I'm in like this warehouse building where it's just like steel beams and insulation. So I'm not even oh. sure how that would work. Uh steel beams. I don't well, think I, you can. I mean, I'm sure you can do it, uh, but it'd probably be nicer if there was like drywall. Yeah, right. You know, eight feet high or whatever around the yep. edge of the building. Be cool to use like those really strong magnets. You know, they they mm. make magnets that are just designed to hang stuff off of. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, yeah I like had to. Wanna... I've had to route two twenty power a little bit, but that's okay. That's it. So. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I only have the Tormox, so I don't feel that bad just right. using the hose right now. I mean, only one of my mills needs air, fortunately. Oh, really? Yeah, my other mill has a, a completely mechanical tool changer, so. Oh. The only thing that it uses air for is a spindle purge when it removes a tool and uh, and a little bit of an air blast over the, the, the bottom spindle bearings just to keep coolant out. Yeah, I... Um... I'm surprised how many mills actually require air because, right? I don't know. It seems like uh, unless you're you're actually using it as coolant, it's just like another thing to deal with. So, I mean, I'm sure it's better somehow, or I, I don't know. It's just all the tool changers use air, and then most most mills also have uh, an an air purge going through the bottom spindle bearings just to keep out coolant. Yeah, so that, you need air, kinda... but you also you need air. You, you need dry air, so you need to have a an air dryer as well. Or are you just going to put moisture through your bearings? That's that's kind of what I was thinking. But uh, I've used lathes where I'm pretty sure, like the Haas lathes I've used, the air is literally just for the chuck and nothing else. Uh, but I could be wrong. Um, on a lathe, so I... it's so it's not using uh, air to clean any bearings or whatever i know most like most three jaws or most you know chuck actuators are uh are hydraulic typically what do Uh, lathes use air for other than air blast so on mine these the parts catchers use air cylinders like uh cylinders Mm -hmm. yeah and then yeah there's a air blast and then the chucks on mine are hydraulic and i would just imagine that you can gain a lot more clamping force. Yeah. Yep. The hydraulics. And then the tool changer or the turret is actually electric. And on yep. some lathes they're hydraulic. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So do you have a, uh, does yours do a, a little air purge through the, the sub spindle when it uh, goes to do a pickoff? So the hose is there, but because I put <laughs> this, like this different collet system on there, and I had to make this adapter. It's really far away from the original hose. So I have actually meant to um, okay. recrimp the line and actually put an extension on it. But I have not gotten to it. I just I haven't needed it yet either, luckily. Right. Yep. Um, and the only for the pivots where it's like they'll get chips in the collet, the subsequent collet, because it's u- using a 15C collet. I'll just actually run coolant on that tool. And that's okay. enough to knock the chips out there. But nice. 
Yeah, it doesn't. It would work good on a chuck, the air blast, because you got the space between the jaws. You can get yep. air behind, but unfortunately, with the collet system, it's like you can't get air to it. You know, because yeah. the collet's only open on the front. Yep. So. Yeah. Yeah. Surprisingly, yeah. the like Citizen L12s and the Swiss lathes are pretty air hungry. They have a lot of air blasts in a lot of places to purge out chips. Gotcha. Some of those use uh, they'll use air spindles too. Yeah, like for yep. tiny tools. yeah. They'll have those like really uh, high, like 20, 30, 40,000 RPM air, air, air spindles. Yep. 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 Yeah. How's uh, how's your week going, Dayon? It's been things have gone better in the past. Um, yeah. I've been fighting, been fighting some some really bad power outages because we're in the storming season. Oh, yeah. oh gotcha. Yep. And my entire process like relies on continuous power for at least 23 hours a day so i've walked in four mornings in a row now to a uh turned off machine mid-cycle oh man so i have blades with little dents in the bevels from when the uh, head drops down like 10 15 thou oh that's interesting yeah like i don't know if there's a break on my z-axis on this particular machine but uh, every time it loses power it does uh it drops about like 15 20 thou yeah, I don't know how Z-axis are typically held up. I know they like people call them. They use a ballast, but what is what is right. a ballast? Is it right. is it? A, I, I don't know. I think some might strut? use counterweights. Well, I know there's. I believe there's also counterweights, maybe. But yeah, um, there's also machines that have like straight up brakes, like kind of like a disc brake almost. Yeah. Apparently, my VF1 has a counterweight because it's got to fill up for the counterweight. Oh, <laughs> oh, like oh, it uses like liquid. Yeah, it's it. I think it said liquid nitrogen, although that doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, but what yeah, it's got a port. It, I don't know. It's got a port though, and it's like, hey, fill fill up this with liquid something. Interesting. For the counterweight. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know how it works, but I I realized it had to be a thing because I uh I had a been using different Haas mills at my old job, and just one of them, you know, you could see the load meter on each axis, and the Z was just always like at thirty percent load or something. Yeah, oh, so wow. I was like, "Oh, it's probably supposed to be balanced out somehow." Yep. I have to double check, but I think my I think my resting uh, load on the z-axis servo is like fifty percent on my on, on my mighty. Oh my yeah. gosh! Mm. I think I have I to think, double check that. But I think mine's like that too on the VF2. Yeah. And I I maybe say, maybe it just has to be. Maybe there isn't. It just the motor has to hold it, and that's normal. Just a lot but, of weight. Yeah, I would say like. I would I would guess because if it's got load on it, it's holding position, and that's probably why. But like on mine, I've had so I have a weird power issue, like a voltage dip issue. Oh yeah, it has to be ramped up. If anyone ever like watches a video or something, it's like, yo, what is that? So I had to (laughs) ramp it up because if you go too fast, it basically brings the line voltage down low enough to go under the Haas safety, whatever it is. I think it's like two hundred and ten volts, and it'll just shut the mill off. So it's done that mid cut and I never have any it's not it doesn't lower or anything it just sits there and I've never yep. seen any like the tool pressure marks or anything from it doing that. So I wonder oh. if it does have a break or something. It probably like, has a break on an e-stop it'll do that. Cuz my 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 newer older machine my the Miltronics I purchased recently uh that one has a has a break on the spindle. Gotcha. And anytime that it gets uh powered down for like any reason mid cut there's like no mark unless it's a finish pass in which case it's just because it sat there and spun yeah well, there... mills typically also have those like big d batteries or whatever it might be to like save all your offsets or whatever yeah uh, even without power yeah, yeah the yeah the 
parameter, um, the APC battery, I believe is what it's called. And, and you're on, saying those batteries aren't enough to keep it running overnight? <laughs> no, God, I wish. I mean, I'm looking, I, I'm looking into generators or other potential options, but uh, it's all very expensive. Yeah, I, I had I had to replace those batteries one time in my old shop on like I don't know twenty different uh, VMCs over the course of a week, and oh, I, it, it, every day it cracked me up because I'm just like all of these mills are running off of tiny little batteries. <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's that particular thing is the most ridiculous like thing to me. It's it's, it's so non volatile <laughs> like permanent flash storage has been available for so so long they could just store parameters on that they wouldn't need that little battery yeah yeah and it's it's so easy to mess that up like if you replace those while the machine is off you just lost everything you're screwed yep yes you have to turn on the machine make sure it's on and make sure there's not some funky board problem and then replace it and then turn it off it's great it's the so weird even better things like on my mighty my mighty was actually delivered to me with with dead parameter batteries oh wow um, so it was actually down for like an extra week and a half, two weeks after install because uh, of a simple thing like that. that and then, parameters are so hard to tack down to when you're fixing are. all that stuff. And so the mighty, you know, you have to change your batteries when the machine's on. If you open the cabinet of the mighty while it is on, it shuts the machine off and the battery is inside the oh, cabinet. Oh, you're serious. So you have to turn the machine off, open it, zip tie one of the little switches on the door that way oh it thinks the door god. is closed and then turn it back on oh my god it's the most over-engineered backwards engineered little system i've ever seen that's so stupid <laughs> such a weird machine dude man yep well were those electricians for your uh for your haas yeah i didn't realize they're coming this morning um everything's so, uh, going fast it's well, it's fast as slow. So I, I, this is the second quote that we're trying to get. The first guy was like, look, we don't have the employees and we don't have the time. Uh, so it, it may be a while. So that's why we got these guys running through. So we'll see if yep. maybe they can go faster. I mean, it's a really easy thing to do. How how long is the run for it? Uh, well, so the, the 480 is in, a, in the ground outside. Uh, they've okay. got to run it through a building, through essentially two walls. Uh, put oh. up a pan, a, a disconnect, and a, they need to add another sub panel. Um, okay, jeez. Because yeah, well, so like I'm out of power back here, but we have 480 yep. in the ground, and so yeah, okay. I'm basically we're gonna have them put a sub panel, put a disconnect, run it about uh, 60 feet through two walls, and then I'm gonna wire it to a transformer and then wire it to the machine. Yep. Did it come with a transformer? Uh, Did you have to get one for it? No, I'm buying one. Okay, so it's a lot more. It's guys, a lot more involved than I thought. Do you guys all have three phase? Uh, yeah, yeah, I do. Yes. Okay. Even. So, what is causing the voltage dip, John? That that like the issue I'm, you're having. So I am <laughs> disclaimer. I'm not an electrician or an electrical engineer. But yeah, right. So I'm the. I'm on a older. It's an older neighborhood. The house is from the fifties, but. Um, the garage is on its own sub panel, 100 amp sub sub panel, which is like okay. 150 feet run under the ground, and that's that's basically on a breaker from the main panel that's in the house. Ah. So there's a chance that the wires in the ground are not high enough in gauge in thickness. Essentially, I guess that mm-hmm. would be 
I guess that would be low engage. Um, yeah. And so that could cause it basically like that kind of constriction. Yeah. In the wire thickness. But I think really what it is, is I'm like the fifth or sixth house on the transformer up on the pole. Uh-oh. And basically it's an old transformer, like an old smaller one. And mm-hmm. the electrical company, at least when I called them and then the electrician was like, it's probably that because other than that, there's nothing else right that would cause it so yeah, that's frustrating does your lathe do it too so the lathe doesn't and i think because it doesn't have the same sort of safety circuit there and <laughs> it just so i can it's it's interesting because when air conditioners are running especially when it's being really hot this week is yep. the line voltage is like three volts below what it normally is and oh, so wow. even even doing the spindle ramp thing if the air compressor comes on while it's ramping up it'll shut the mill off Uh, but i can actually run all three air compressor lathe and mill all at 100 percent rapid it's just the spindle ramp that causes that dip ah that's frustrating what what horsepower is your mill and what horsepower is your lathe the mill is supposedly 30 but it's like horsepower so it's like really 15 (laughs) and uh yeah and the lathe is supposedly 15, which I would honestly guess is probably correct. It's yep. probably, you know, rated correctly. Yeah. Um, and I'm definitely not using the lathe for its full, <laughs> you know, turning like half inch bar, basically. But yeah, right. Um, yeah, so it's just it's such a it's the same thing with you. It's not on the same scale, but like I'll walk out there and the machine's off and it's like awesome. Same thing. Great kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Oh yep. man. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know the the torque curves or whatever of the Haas spindles, but uh I I would just imagine that the mill's going to take more power than the lathe. I have a very visceral torque demonstration I watched the other day. So, no. <laughs> yeah, so I'm so I'm machining the lock bar inserts and I'm like, you know, it would make this go way faster is if I just faced the block with a face mill. And so I have this Mitsubishi like ASX. I don't know what it is, but it's a four insert two inch face mill. And it's like it's perfect because it's the limit for pocket size. So you don't have to have like, you know, Mm. you can use it in one pocket. You don't have to have space next to it kind of thing. Okay. so I'm like, okay, I should probably start using this because I'm just having little line streaks or whatever on the handles or whatever when I go to tumble. And I'm like, I bet if I could just take this in two passes with the correct inserts. This would save me a lot of headache. Plus the time right. is huge. So I'm like, I'm setting it up to do the lock bar inserts and they're just held in with like the 832nd pit bulls that Mighty Bite mm-hmm. makes. And I'm like, okay, cool. And I'm like looking at the feeds and speeds for it. And it's like, yeah, 350 RPM at like four inches a minute. Cause I'm going to take like it in a full pass. And it was like 50 thou depth of cut. And I was like, okay. I don't think this is going to be a problem whatsoever. Like this is, it's just 17 four. Yeah. So I got to do this <laughs> and it's on the six inch pallet. It's on the six inch tombstone on the fourth axis. And this was immediately after I'd fixed that it was out in Y by like three thou. Oh yeah. I remember um, story. This is that day. So I got to <laughs> oh, no. run it and it goes to, it touches, it touches the block, the, the stock. And it, I literally watched the tombstone shake away from the pole stud. Oh my God. Like oh, it God. actually pulled out like, it was like probably one sixteenth of gap. Like I was watching the face mill 
bounce <laughs> against the oh. stock and not cut. And I was like, oh my. So I stopped oh. it and I was like, I stopped it and I, you know, you jog it up in Z and it like, it makes the nice snapping sound when everything oh. goes back to center. And I was Yo. like, oh, that was really good for the spindle. <laughs> and I, I just, oh re, you know, I re-indicated and everything and it was still, it was still where it was supposed to be. And I was like, oh sweet, I don't have to do all that work again. That's but nice. yeah, as far as torque curves go, don't run a, like a, you know, the 12K Haas spindle with a two inch face mill at that speed. So I changed it to like 1500 and then it was nice and good. But okay. yeah, I was going to say, it's no power there. Too low. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and, yeah. and like with that kind of thing, uh, you know, with a, with a face mill, I'd probably start with low depth of cut and then see how much you can. I mean, 50 isn't huge, you know, especially for a real mill, not a Tormach. But yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I probably would have maybe tried a real skim pass and then start. Yeah, it's like I've. I've ran solar feeds and speeds on other like Cat 40 machines like Dusons yeah. and all that and just kind of yeah. chugs along happily. Yeah, I get the I get the feeling that it was because of the way the tombstone in the orange pole stud thing is set up that it's yeah. not very not very not sure what the word is. It's not very strong, I guess. But, so you're uh, using um you're using those orange pole studs for the tombstone? Yeah, it's on a like a nice. ZPS base, which by the way yeah. they're they're discontinuing and changing because I emailed them and I'm like, okay, uh, <laughs> I guess I won't buy more of the bases if I need them and just wait. So it's kind That's of kind of f- frustrating. You yeah. Have to, like, are you going to have to, you going to implement something new or just use it until you can't anymore? Honestly, I think I'm going to go to Lang. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's nice. um, but that stuff's really expensive. So like, right. I mean, yeah, yeah. Lang, Shunk, all those are pretty expensive. Yeah, but I can I can totally see why now. Like I totally I'm starting to get it. Why that yeah. stuff makes sense. Oh yeah. Um, have you looked at fifth axis? Um, so I have, but I don't know. I just feel like if I'm gonna spend like fifth axis is almost like in the zone of laying money, but yeah, it is. But it, yeah, it's a little more than you'd expect. Uh... I've never been impressed with any of the fifth fifth axis products before if i'm being honest yeah and i've, I've used their self-centering vices in the past and a couple other things and it was mediocre yeah i think when i did research last year and i was like i was like you know i'd like to be able to make weird weird pallets or weird tombstones so like how much are the pole studs from fifth axis versus even lang and i was like wow these are really expensive for just the pole stud and i think lang was actually half and oh wow like mind you it's a it, honestly it's probably better business sense just to buy the thing completely set up kind of thing but yeah. if you need like a custom tombstone or a weird shape then it's nice to have that option and looking at it i was like why is fifth axis this price versus you know like shunk or or lang right the literal industry leading standard yeah does uh does raptor make like just flat bases Oh, I'm not too sure. I th- I think they just make the, what do you call them? They're uh, whatever the like dovetail stuff. Yeah, I think they do. They do bases for something else too. I mean, they probably have their own line of self-centering or zero point. Everybody's got a zero point line now. I was like, how hard would it be to make <laughs> a zero right. point system myself? And then I'm like, that's not worth it. I designed a, a whole zero point uh, palette system like seven or eight years ago 
yeah. I think we all have. I because I yeah, even right. on the Tormach, I uh, before I was working on the Bow Scissors, I had a fourth axis set up and was doing this other project I'll talk about someday. And uh, I tried to design fixturing and ended up buying a little bit of fifth axis stuff. Okay. Because um, I was basically doing like five axis tool paths, but on a fourth axis. Yeah. Um, I mean, so they weren't actually five axis, but I was doing like cool 3D surfacing and super weird shapes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I Pearson, like, because I thought about just sticking with fifth axis for just the 2D stuff, but uh, Pearson was just such a better deal. Right. Yeah. I like that stuff I've I've come to realize is it's the reliability thing is so important. It and is. then I also have like the the HRT two ten, the fourth axis that's on the Haas is like mm-hmm. it's good, but I don't know it doesn't repeat as well as I'd like it to. And I don't know if it was my doing, but I'll you know, between different weeks it won't it'll be like a foul. Now, granted, I think this is within its rated repeatability. But yeah. if you basically command like 180 and then you go back to zero and then, you know, you have it set dead nuts perfect with like a tenth indicator over the face of the block or whatever, like it'll be good for that day, the next two days. But then suddenly, randomly, it'll just be like two thou off kind of thing. And this is like if you wow. sweep, if you sweep the, that. Yeah. So if you sweep the top surface and it's a six inch surface, so it's a pretty, pretty long long thing with a tenth indicator and so you start from one end and go the other it'll basically be two thou of rise or um or uh, what do you call it slope or whatever yep um and so for the for the knife stuff it's like really important that it repeats kind of thing so my confidence is not there sometimes and it's frustrating because another thing is is like i want to be able to take the orange tombstone off and put something else there and that way you can kind of either batch different parts or just yeah, have exactly. it dedicated. But what ends up happening is I'm like, I don't know if it's going to repeat in that way again. And I have to reprobe everything. So it's like you end up making this tombstone that has every single part on it. And then. Yep. So that's what if you made a little, not that good either. You could make a little probing routine that just probes each side. Yeah. where It's supposed to be at flat and then just have it compensate. Yeah. So what I ended up, yeah. So what I ended up doing was like that, and then also you have bores that were machined when the fixture itself, or yep. the, the tombstone was machined. So yep. you know at least you're repeating back to yeah, they as close as you can get it to how it was machined. But exactly, I don't know. I go back and forth so much about like, man, I really want to redo this tombstone or this fixturing. Like, is it worth the time to do this kind of thing? Because it's a yep. it's a huge deal, really. Oh, it is. I mean, I've used a, um, I've used a really small Haas fourth axis rotary, and I've also used the Haas uh, TRT two ten five axis trunnion. Yeah, and I hated both of them. Yeah, the the trunnion fifth axis I have not heard <laughs> very. No, very and much the TRT two ten is the it's the trunnion that's unsupported on on the left side. So it's, yeah, yeah, I've seen that. It the the main bearing on the A axis went out in the first month. Oh, I can't God. imagine why. <laughs> nope, couldn't. Yep, can't yeah, even imagine why. Couldn't even. Yep. And it has like a max load of like thirty-five or forty pounds. So like after I put on a five-axis vice, I had like n- I had no more weight to the yeah. material. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's... So, uh, when I was when I was uh trying to use the Tormach 
fourth axis, and I, I think they have a better one now. Um, definitely backlash was an issue, and so I just tried to, uh, you know, only turn in one direction, basically. Have you tried? I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe this sounds really basic and uh, patronizing or something, but, like, can you do anything like that? Um, so the way it homes, it seems to be, and I think I have this in, as a setting, it just basically spins whatever direction is closest to that to that offset. Because otherwise what happens is it'll do like the wrapping thing where it's like you command A120. And if you've already commanded like A120 before, it'll oh, go yeah, past 360 okay. and add. So yeah, the it'll setting, just be counting up. Yeah, so the setting basically goes yeah. your rotation and then to zero. And I think it just picks what direction is closer. And I also think... If you go like a, let's say you go a twenty, and then you're like, okay, I need a negative twenty. It's not going to fully three sixty. It's just going to go to a twenty. So you're going backwards at that point. Yep. Well, and, you can still counter backlash by you overshoot it and then go back. But I don't know how to program it to do that. Or maybe it automatically tries to do that. Yeah. Um. I don't like. I don't think that would be. That would be a lot of. I think additional headache. Cause right now what I do is I just check it every couple days with an indicator that's already set up, but I get what you're saying. And honestly, like as far as still being new to everything, it's like pretty amazing that you can rotate something like that and actually have it repeat as close right. as it does, even yep. though it's not as close as I'd like. It's just, mm-hmm. I don't know how the mechanics in that thing work, but it's pretty, it's pretty cool actually. Yeah, I'm not sure how the, how the Haas rotaries, if they're running on like a, like a planetary gear on the inside, or if it's just a belt. Yeah, I I want to say it's planetary because I feel like I've seen the disassembly video of them. But okay, yeah, I mean it's just like another one of those things. It's like you you design these parts and you're like, okay, I can machine these on the fourth axis, but should you? Because it's right. another failure yeah. point, and if it mm-hmm. fails, you're you're screwed, you know. And it's like yep. it's the same thing with your air compressor going down or like the reed switch in the lathe breaking. There's so yeah. many of these little yeah. tiny things that just mess everything up but yeah try not to think about uh, it the fourth axis would be so nice for blades i feel like but i'd probably not be super enthusiastic to run it on other stuff so completely honest i've been thinking about bringing them back to a three axis fixture oh really? he's gonna kick them at an angle will you just have them at an angle like on an angle block or something nope i would just machine them with bullnose and then with the bullnose uh, yeah I, I don't think i'm gaining actually as much as i hoped as far as okay side yeah. with, a, with a ball nose and i don't know if it's i don't think it's a rigidity thing i just think it's a machine i i'm at the limit for stuff yeah especially that fourth axis i think you're mostly yeah. by your fourth axis yeah um yeah i i don't know there's there's one feature on the blade that has to be machined on the fourth axis but it doesn't have have to be it would just make it like another op essentially those, have, is it those little angled jimping lines on the spine yeah, so those might nope. actually get changed if I decide to go back to yeah three axis stuff. Yeah, just kick them at a at a perpendicular angle to the to the face. Yeah, the the three axis. It's like you don't think about it, but it's it's so reliable. Like a it pallet, is. you know, yep. it doesn't it oh, doesn't yeah. move as long as the base doesn't move. It's mm-hmm. like now it takes a lot of money to get reliable, uh, like fourth and fifth axis stuff. Yeah, what do you guys use for uh, fixturing and stuff, Pearson? Pearson. Gotcha. Same. <laughs> <laughs> For three-axis work, Pearson is, is is so great. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I've looked into all the Orange Vice stuff. Um, and I think there it definitely has a merit, especially for more like job shop work. Um, oh, totally. Like having actual vices and stuff is great. But for just like, hey, I want an aluminum fixture, Pearson's the best. Yep. It it's you, it's you, so you, repeatable. Yeah. You guys do this. Do you guys actually use them like they're envisioned where you look yes. you have two identicals? Yep. yep. I have I have at least two of every fixture. And while one is running, I load the other one. Yeah, I feel I've like I've kind of done that, but that's uh, premature for me, so I no longer have done that. Yeah, right. I, I feel like I'm at that stage now where I'm like, okay, the knife is like, I don't need to make any changes. I yep. just need to make stuff better. I feel like I'm at the point where I could make, you know, five of the same part kind of thing and be yeah. okay. I mean, if you, I, if you pulled your fourth axis completely off too, you could fit two or three Pearson pallets on your table. And just yeah. completely load it up once you have like a proven, like once one pallet is proven, just slap yeah. on two more and then That's make true. three more. <laughs> so yeah, my only issue with that, like I would actually, you know, I wish that was the way like I had, I had done it, but the mm-hmm. backspacer and the clip are, they would be difficult to fixture ah. axis because of the way, especially the way the clip is. Yeah, there's some yeah. weirdness in there. I guess you can make yeah. a like a much shorter tombstone for your fourth and put like two pe- Pearson pallets on, maybe. Yeah, I can actually, I can fit, I could do that right now and still work okay. with. So the, you guys uh, are using the full size Pearson pallet? I, I'm on the minis actually. Uh, yeah, so I'm am I? I the only thing I don't like about the mini is it doesn't have the gasket. So I hate yeah. that chips like get underneath it. Like they don't, the, the chips don't get into the locating studs or anything, but. I don't know. It still annoys me because I have to like wipe off the bottom of the pallets. Yeah, I think the pal or the gasket would annoy me. It depends on if like chips get stuck to the gasket, which I feel like they would. Yeah, uh, every O ring that I've seen in a in a mill has chips stuck in it. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So yeah, I have a little system where you just blow off the pads and then I take a rag and wipe off the uh, the little pa- uh, pads on the pallet and everything is good all the time. So yeah. if you guys were to do it again, you would do exactly the same yep, thing. I would do the exact same thing. People who have orange vices do love them. And I know like Lucas uses them. Grimsmo uses the orange palettes on the on his Mori. Yeah. And uh, there's they're also supposed to be really, really good. So those um, are those are actually different from what I have, because those are the their palettes for the vice. Yeah. So yep. they're locate on the vice. The the ZPS bases use a different pull stud and they use like square palettes. So. That's kind of like closer to Pearson without okay. the pneumatic stuff. It yeah. Do they just have like an Allen wrench to? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But I kind of wonder, I kind of wonder, like, so I've thought about Pearson for this, this whole like fixture change type thing. Yep. But I wonder if, if I'm still going to keep the fourth axis, would it be smart to actually go completely all Lang stuff and keep yeah. it universal? You know, that way you could uh, go from if you wanted it three axis, you could bring it to the fourth axis because it would you use, use the same studs. Yeah, I think it's going to be a big money difference, and any advantage you get from that compatibility, I feel like, isn't going to be enough to make the difference up. But yeah, it's a I huge money difference. It's not. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a multiple mile difference. But at Yo. the end of the day, like if it helps you make two extra knives a week, you already pay right. for it in a month. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Does Lang have like so. actual bases? Uh, they do. They they make like their universal bases, but I actually don't know what the actuating mechanism is. Right. I don't think it's air. I want to okay. say it's a screw, and it might be hydraulic. Again, I have no idea. So I'm just completely, completely. Yeah, guessing. 
I'm really only familiar with Pearson using air, which sucks. They have to line, you know, make the line go up to it. Um, but uh, it's also nice because then it's just a button and it's like always the same versus having to not forget yep. to use a torque wrench or whatever. The button yeah. is really nice. And, and yeah, if you I, lose I air, it's still secure, you know, whereas it's not like the air needs to always be running for it to hold. So it's kind of yeah. accident proof. Yeah. I, I've heard people who use Pearson stuff. I've almost never heard anything bad. And then the same thing with Lang stuff. But it's like, yep. like I said, the price differences. Yeah. <laughs> you yep. would hope. Yeah, for any three axis work, uh, I'll stick to Pearson personally. But Orange is also a fantastic option. I think they're all good options. Yeah. Hmm. I want to. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was say my my current train of thought. Uh, if you're if you're thinking about fixturing, uh, yeah. I I am I am probably going to be swapping over to some sort of steel fixturing as opposed to the aluminum. Um, the way I think I'm going to do it is just make a boltable top plate for a Pearson pallet, bolt mm. that on, and machine that to final dimension. I am just sick of stripping out aluminum screws uh like dinging out the aluminum walls when you're clamping on it aluminum is just too soft for uh, most of my clamping purposes yep. even yeah. even if uh you use helicoils or something the helicoils are better but it's still like i haven't i haven't broken out a helicoil um my so my blade palette i've replaced every single threaded insert or every single thread with a a now steel threaded insert um, the actual inserts are fine. The problem is I like there's, there's chips that get stuck under the blades and I have to scrub them away because they're yeah. denting the palate. Um, yep. and I like, I know right now it's not a big deal, but in a, two years from now, um, that palate's going to be trash because it's just going to get yeah. dented out with chips and stuff. So I think it's one of those things, at least on the aluminum ones, I've just kind of accepted that in the next six months I'll have to make new ones. Um, yeah, I actually have right. a little helicoil station now, so whenever I lose a thread, <laughs> nice. I just put the pallet in that station and then just do it by hand real quick while it's running. Nice. I I think I I was talking to Dalen whenever one day I stripped out like three threads in one yep. sitting, and I just went yep. screw this. I bought like I don't know eighty helicoils and just yeah. started replacing everything on the pallet because yeah. I'm uh-huh. so frustrated. Yep, dude, my uh, my assembly tech. So I have him run the the Miltronics on um on some of the less critical stuff. And uh, he's cursed with aluminum threads. Oh, I think God. he has stripped out. He's stripped out every single thread on every single pallet on the Miltronics oh, already. Wow! And I mean, the machinist tendency is to over tighten the hell out of everything, though. And right? so, yeah. I mean, it's funny because I have a drill with a with a with a clutch on it, and like I'll watch him do it, and everything is fine. It's just like super bad luck or something. I don't know what it yeah, is. Yeah, I mean, it is. Yeah, I mean, it's going to happen, of course. So, <laughs> you know, how do you guys? I have I have never stripped a hole like actually like going to tightness and to torque and stuff on mm-hmm. all the aluminum stuff. But then again, like my volume is yep. is completely different. But I how mean, do you guys make the threads when you machine the fixtures? I oh, tap I them. I, I, you, I'm not using helicoils, but I do use form taps for everything. Are you so are you form tapping them or are they are no, they I'm like, just cut tapping them? them? Gotcha. So yeah. the form tap, because I form tap all the stuff. I yeah, wonder if like that better. would be that additional like 10, 20 percent. They're definitely, definitely better. could be. Yeah. No, I mean, part uh, of it as well is um, I could do better with uh, with how much thread engagement I have in in, in certain holes uh, buying the like proper, proper length screws. Oh, yeah, that's that's um, definitely. 
it's one of those yeah. things where I just kind of send it, and then as they strip, I just helical oil them, and then they're fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> At least with yeah, helical, I, you're gaining that that extra width. That I try to I try to go like extra deep just so that chips fall to the bottom of the hole and aren't like yeah. in the thread that's actually being engaged. Yeah. You know, just if it happens, really small stuff. Yep. Yeah, I always go like an extra three eighths deep because then I'm like, oh, I need to reface the surface because it's you know. Right. Or if it does strip, then you feel. can get a longer screw to use. Yeah. yeah. I, I will say my one issue with the Pearson that I've been struggling with on pallet design is the uh, whatever you call it, the center ball bearing engagement yeah. jig. It comes up into the pallet a good like three quarters yeah. of an inch. And so yeah, if you if you want to put a clamp anywhere near that, uh, you really much run out of space because one okay. one of my mighty bites is just like barely on the ring of that, and I accidentally drilled through the Yo. steel portion just a tiny bit. Oh gosh! Um, I mean, yeah, I've seen I, your fixtures. Yeah, well, it, so the problem is, so my second op, uh, the mighty bite sunk down into the fixture quite a ways. Yep. Um, so it's you know half inch of sunk into the pallet and three quarter inch sunk from the bottom of the pallet, which means I only have like uh, a quarter inch of solid threads in in that area before i start drilling into the actual like engagement thing um which of yeah, course you, i i stripped that out because <laughs> you really gotta enough. like import the model and and be doing a bunch of section yeah. views a bunch of tests to figure out or uh keep an yeah. eye on it uh we're almost out of time or i mean we can stop whenever but uh i kind of really wanted to ask if you guys have a two-op part do you put both ops on the same pallet or do you do one op, one pallet? Oh, both ops, same pallet. Yep. Both ops, same pallet. That way, every time that a cycle finishes, you're pulling off finished parts. Yep. Yeah. Cause see, that was, you know, that overall leads to less pallets. You have two duplicates. You're, you know, swapping one from one side to the other. But I just, I've totally kind of changed around my thinking because I just often want to tweak things with one operation, which means. You know, if the other operation's fine, now I'm having to make a whole nother pallet and the second operation's fine. Uh, or or if you, I change the parts. Sorry, go ahead. Well, so you're you're saying tweak it enough that you actually have to change the pallet for like the first up or whatever, or second up. Yeah, um, like if if uh or or like a, a better example is you're you're starting with rectangular stock or something. That right. can always just be rectangular pockets and pit bulls. But, but then if the shape of your handle slightly changes, that needs a custom pocket. And so yeah. now I've kind of wanted to keep those separate. I think uh, part so, of that as well is because you're still in, in the like prototyping and dial-in phase. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yep. So, um, I mean, you, you may want to do it however you want to do it. But my experience, what I've done is... When I'm prototyping a brand new design, I will take just a block of aluminum and put it in a vise. I, I won't Aww. sacrifice a Pearson, and I'll make I'll make the flow op one two three, uh, but I won't do two handles. I'll only do one handle, um, and then so worst case, if I if I want to change things dramatically, I'm just scrapping a, a little small chunk of aluminum. I'm not scrapping a whole Pearson pallet, um, and obviously I can just run the cycle twice to get two handles. It is it is a very cheap and easy way to get a kind of a single use fixture or a like temporary fixture, and then when I when I've set my design stone, I make a proper uh, Pearson for it. 
That's what I've done no, as well. I, I, I'll do that too. I do it less because I keep thinking I'm done prototyping. <laughs> yeah, right. But then I realize yeah. I have to change something. But uh, yeah. um, to me, I also like it. Like, I think it gets becomes a bigger problem if you have more than two ops, if you have three or four or five, whatever ops. Um, because then it's also just annoying uh, if uh, you have to deal with multiple programs because, uh, or you have to be like disabling lots of operations or whatever because you're like oh i just want to run one thing all the way through versus you know you plan on just always running all three ops every time but if if you're like i just want to wrap up these parts i don't want to leave them on the fixture then you have to run just op three but then that means you're going to have to run just op one when you start again and then you're going to have to run op one and two together and i don't know it feels like go ahead uh, well, so what what I've done, and I was even talking to about to Zeke about this uh, last week, I think. Um, so I've just, whenever I was prototyping, I posted, you know, 5001 is literally op one, 5002 is op two, 5003 is op three, 5004 is all of them. Um, and that way, if I just wanted to run one op, I just have it right there. Uh, Zeke recommended something that may change the way I do everything is... Okay. I'm going to post every single op individually, and then I'm going to write a, write a master program that just calls each operation in sequential mm-hmm. order. And then I could, I could MDI essentially, you know, call 5002 and then it goes for it. Or I could just run 5002 individually if I wanted to do that. Um, and that way I can tweak the master program and I could tweak each individual program and in, like completely mm-hmm. separately and it'll all propagate through when I'm, when I'm ready for it. That's how I wanted to do it. Uh, however, I don't have enough memory on my control for that. <laughs> oh, that's a bummer. <laughs> Even if hey, I just you could probably buy a out, megabyte for a thousand dollars. Oh, it'd be more. I mean, I already have upgraded memory on it. It's five hundred and twelve kilobytes. Oh my oh, god! Hell yeah! Machines. I think I might be able to go up, up to like one or two meg, but it cost me like four or five grand. I think. It's, I I don't understand it. They... It's ridiculous. Like even one of my surfacing toolpaths is too much for the control. So I, I I can't have like a master program that I that I then call up sub programs for. I am shocked that nobody has come up with some like interface between modern day SSD and whatever the hell these mills are running off of. Um, right. Because like mean, this is a problem in every single machine shop I've ever been in. Is I thought you one drip feed. So well, I you, drip feed. The you problem can. with drip feeding is you can't you can't do any macro programming. Okay. In a drip feed program, it won't let you. Gotcha. It's so I don't get to have fun. That's what I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh. Drip, drip feeding isn't as fun as as it sounds. <laughs> I mean, I drip feed on a daily basis on my Fanook because I have to. Um, uh, yeah, but it makes me sad because I can't do a lot of like really fun macro programming that I want to do. Yeah. Like I can't make uh, tool life macros. Yeah. Because, Which because is I can't some, call I, up those sub programs in it. Yeah, I really want to get into that more. Yep. Like, so when, Zeke, Zeke has writ, written a lot of macros, and I'm very excited to have him in the shop. Oh, that's going to be an awesome asset. Yeah. Yeah. So with like video cameras, you know, if you're recording super uh, high res 4K, 422, whatever, um, you know, you have to have a good enough SD card, or it just can't process the memory fast enough. And I get, and there's not going to be enough temporary memory inside yeah. the camera. Yep. Uh, I imagine like there just has to be some crazy speed requirements or something with the memory 
And, you know, because I don't think it's just like literally every company's greedy or whatever. You know, I think one company would be like, hey, we're going to be the best memory ever. And then, you know, everyone would buy their machines. Yep. Well, um, it's got to be like some weird technical challenge. I actually really don't think it is. Not all um, machine tool companies or like control companies are greedy. Uh, Miltronics ships with like, I think um, like it ships with 128 gig solid state drive by default these days. Yeah, that's still um, low for these days. Though, like you, you know, I well, bought no, a laptop yeah. with a terabyte. Well, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's also just because these text—they're just text files. It, but, one, they're text files. Two, the big thing is reliability. Yeah, exactly. Uh, getting you know? getting a terabyte reliable is much harder than getting a hundred gigs reliable. That's yeah. true, especially solid state. That was the whole thing that slowed solid state coming to market. Is just yeah, you have to like mm-hmm. compensate for uh, gates that fail over time or something. Yeah, yeah, the, the flash memory it it is it degrades with every use. There, it takes like a billion uses, but it does right? slowly degrade. I mean, Hollis ships with like one gig by by default, which is more than enough for anything that I'd ever need. I, yeah, I, it, honestly, it, I haven't even checked what my house is, but I've never run into a problem. Ninety nine, I mean, it'll have at least a few meg. There's just oh, also well, like the whole thing seems outdated, like the operating system. And I think they've just built on, you know, especially Fanuc or whatever. It's just built on like such old systems or whatever. It's because yeah. it's reliable. Yeah. Uh, it, like as much as I, I mean, Fanuc is definitely not intuitive, um, nor is their memory very accessible. But uh, if there's one thing Fanuc is good at, it is reliability. I've never had a control issue on a Fanuc. I, what counts as a control issue? Uh, I mean, anything uh, like the control crashing, like weird screen issues, like okay. anything just weird that, that that shouldn't happen. I've never had that happen on a Fanuc where I have had that happen on Hauses. What system do your machines run on? Uh, one of them is a Fanuc and then the other one's a Miltronics, which is their own control. How do you like them? Uh, I mean, I love Fanuc. I just hate the memory limitation. And then Miltronics is the opposite. It has really, really great memory. I don't know how much memory it has because it measures it in bytes. And I, I haven't sat down and actually counted out the, the number of digits yet to see how many bytes mm. I have available, but it's a lot. Um, but the Miltronics control is very different from anything else I've used, so I'm still getting used to it. Yeah, I've basically just used Haas or Tormok, and uh, I really have liked Haas's, uh controller Haas is great the next gen controller is really nice i know there have been some issues that i think have probably been fixed since but yeah the the nice thing about that is like they are fixing them there's updates for them like yeah it is it is yeah i've i have fallen in love with Haas control i for a long time until i need like specialty machines i'm gonna keep buying hosses just because it's so nice because i i I learned on snook yeah so did i so, as long as yeah, they I updated to drop the head on startup, then it's yeah. all good. <laughs> yes, because that was a thing t- a couple years ago. Yeah, I um, I've also heard that it's a problem the the actual replacing electronic parts that if you want to get Fanuc or maybe Haas, because at least you know they'll like keep making parts for the old machines electronics, yeah. uh, where you know some more obscure brands. Might be harder if there's some yeah. I mean, random electronic pony you have to replace. I can't but it still supports that. their old controls from like the 80s. Yeah, it's crazy. 
for the most part. They support it the most as as well as they can. Problem is, yes. if you have a weird part from an old machine, they probably keep one in stock, and it takes five <laughs> months to get it back in stock. Yeah, so. in terms of actual parts, it's harder to find. But in terms of like actual like on phone support, troubleshooting things like that, oh, I've actually oh, yeah. called Fanook quite a few times for my old Kitamura. I'm like, why yeah. is this this way, and why is it not working? I'm like, oh, it's probably this, that, or the other. I'm like, wow. Yeah, Thank and you. I on, I love the Fanook service manuals. Because that's I spent way too much time neck deep in those things. Yep. Um, I love them so much. They're very useful. Where a lot of um, I the uh, what is it, Mori something in something one one of the the live tooling lays. Uh, uh-huh. It's on a Mitsubishi control. Ah uh, yes. I almost wanted I, I won't say that it was awful it was so awful we couldn't it, it's almost a brand new machine but we couldn't get any information the service manual was so dumbed down that like it wasn't actually useful um was it the, a service the, manual or like a programming manual it was no it was it was like it, it was they gave us a user manual and you had to be a registered technician to get the service manual like the actual service manual Great. Awesome. And so, and I was like, well, we're obviously not registered technicians. So we, now we have nope. to get somebody to come in that has, and it, and literally they nope. came in and I was looking at the manual and I was like, oh, here's the problem. I told him what it was and he fixed it. And I was like, thank you, whatever. This is stupid. <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> so um, do you want to wrap it up? I think we've, we've gone over. Yeah, we should probably wrap it up here. Yeah. All uh, right. <laughs> thanks everybody like for listening. Yeah, yeah thanks. Bye. Bye. Until next week. <laughs> well, bye now. Goodbye.